about to get this all set. All right, while we're uh, getting set up here, why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles or your Bible app to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to spend some time today. So, all right. Daniel chapter 3. So perhaps uh, this is one of the most popular stories of the exile period. It's the story of the fiery furnace, and it's totally, totally epic. And in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, uh, we read this. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Well, we don't know how much time has passed since the king had this dream about the statue. Um, but eventually he decides to create a statue or an image. And it's unrelated to his dream, apparently. And, and I want you to notice a few things uh, about this statue. First of all, it was probably not a statue of himself. Um, apparently, Babylonians didn't deify themselves like the Egyptians did is probably not of any other human figure uh, as the proportions are really, really way off. So this, this statue is 90 feet high and nine feet wide. So to put that in proportions, if you're six feet tall, then you would be seven inches wide. And I don't know too many of you that are only seven inches um, skinny uh, the whole way, you know, but uh, that's what the proportions would be. So a six foot tall person would be, you know, seven inches wide. So if you draw, make a statue 90 feet tall and nine feet wide, it's, it looks more like a pole than anything else. Um, it was probably made of gold leaf and not solid gold because it's not believed that there was enough gold in Babylon to make a tower that big. Um, and it most likely was an image to one of his gods, one of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. It could have been like Bel Marduk, uh, Nebo, Nargal, Nergal, excuse me, or Ishtar, uh, could have been any one of their gods. Um, so we're, we're not given all of the details of this image, just that it was really tall and noticeably shiny. Uh, and it was a pole that was meant to be seen by everybody. And that kind of takes us to the location. This is significant here. The plain of Dura is obscure. Nobody really knows uh, where that plain is, but the fact that it's a plain in Babylon, where a tall image is erected toward the heavens to make the name of man great, should draw us back to a story. Anybody know what story that would be? Give you a second to pop in the chat there. What story do we have where there was a tower in a plane to make the name of man great? The Tower of Babel. Good answer, Parker family. Genesis chapter 11 verses one through four. And we read this, at one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. And as the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. And they began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. So you notice that they had a unified language. And if you remember, the, the Jews that were brought into service 
uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all of them, they were made to learn the Babylonian language from Daniel chapter 1, verse 4. This would be the Chaldean language, um, which is Aramaic, uh, which is part of what Daniel was written in. So they had a unified language. Um, they were building a tower to the heavens. Uh, they built it in a plain in Babylon, and the intent was to bring glory to man. So the sin of arrogance um, and self-glorification we read about in Genesis 11 is repeated by King Nebuchadnezzar here during the exile. And God's going to confound the people once again, just like he did with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, but this time in kind of a different way. Um, rather than scattering the people, because that's what happened in Genesis 11, God scattered all the people. Rather than scattering the people, God's going to use this massive gathering of people from all the lands to remind them of his power and of his glory. So let's continue reading in Daniel chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Then he sent messages. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Then Nebuchadnezzar sent messages to all the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I, I want to say that I was reading that from the New Living Translation, and the New Living Translation cheats in this passage. Um, in verse 3, they take a shortcut. So if you have the New Living Translation, don't think I'm a hater. I like the New Living Translation, but they took a real shortcut. I want to read this from the, the CSB. You can read it from the CSB, the ESV, uh, the New American Standard, I think, also spells it all out. But the New Living just cheats. It takes a shortcut. So let's read it again in the CSB. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that the king had set up. They stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, the seven types of rulers listed, and in all the versions except the New Living, they actually list them all out over and over again. They keep repeating them, and that's on purpose. Um, so the scholars don't know exactly what all these different titles are. Uh, it's believed to be a list from the greatest down to the least of the rulers of each of these kingdoms. But we're meant to be impressed. Um, not only impressed that so many existed, but in the completeness of this list. There's seven different types of leaders listed here. And to make sure that we're impressed, it's going to be repeated and repeated so that you get the idea that there were a lot of important people here. And they stood before this statue that Nebuchadnezzar had created. Um, now this picture has been painted for us. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has put a tall tower um, in a flat place so it can be seen from far away. A 90-foot tall tower. Now, the top of my house is about 12 feet, so you're talking about eight times taller than that. So like a nine-story building type of thing has been, has been set up in a flat place so that everybody can see it from far away. And all the important leaders of all the regions have come. This is all the people that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered, that he's taken control of. They really don't have an option to decline. So they stand in this plane before this tr tremendous statue and await a word from their king. And that's where we pick up in chapter 3, verse 4. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 4. So a herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, 
you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Um, so again, if you're reading the New Living Translation, it took another shortcut on you. Um, so I read that from the, the CSB so we can get the full version of it there. But we get the idea that this is... Uh, there's a lot of important things going on here because they keep repeating things over and over again. There's, again, we have this list of instruments. The instruments are actually insignificant in the sense that we don't really know what all of them are. Uh, scholars have disagreed on that. Like for instance, uh, you, if you heard me read drum at the end of that list, the New Living Translation um, translates it as pipes. The ESV makes it bagpipes. I don't know about you, but drums and bagpipes, Paul Pandoff, you can correct me on this, but I think there's a big difference between drums and bagpipes. Um, they probably play about the same, maybe. Uh, and then in the New King James Version, it translates as a phrase in symphony. And Paul can confirm. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate that. Um, the music was this massive orchestration. And again, the list is repeated. And, and that's on purpose because it wants us to make sure that we don't lose sight of what's really going on here. Um, it wants us to remember what's being said. So the music is this massive orchestra to signal the people uh, that they were to pay homage or respect to the king by bowing before this image. Now, it really wouldn't be uncommon for a king to do this. If you've conquered a bunch of lands and uh, you can have little uprisings and revolts, you really want to know that the people you've conquered are going to be loyal to you and that they're at least going to give the appearance or the image of being willing to submit to your leadership. So this is not an uncommon practice for conquering leaders. Um, so as King Nebuchadnezzar sets up the statue and says, you're going to bow down to the statue, though they were not bowing down to him. In reality, they were because this was something he had set up. So their bowing with faces to the ground was a symbol of them being defeated in war. And it was this idea of uh, being submissive to the victor. Um, therefore, any resistance would be considered a challenge to the king, and that would be the reason why you would actually then punish them by death. And in this case, it was being made into a burnt offering. Uh, actually, in the book of Jeremiah, you'll find that Nebuchadnezzar is known for burning people, and there's two other people that he's already been uh, accused of burning, uh, prophets who were false prophets. Uh, so this is not an uncommon practice, um, but I'm sure it was a very uh, effective threat. Uh, we'll just kind of burn you up. So all this sets the stage for what I want to call our second crisis of faith in the book of Daniel. The first crisis of faith was whether to eat the king's food and be defiled. That was the challenge that Daniel and his friends had when they approached the, the head of the guard and said, hey, can we eat the vegetables and not the meat and not the wine? This is the second crisis of faith that we come across in the book of Daniel. And it, it picks up in chapter three in verse eight. So some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. I want to just pause there before we read on. It's because of the Jews that these Chaldeans are even alive. I want to make that clear because all of them, these leaders, were supposed to be killed when they couldn't interpret the king's dream. 
And it's because of Daniel interpreting the dream and saying, don't kill all these people, that they're even alive. But the fact that they were elevated above these people who were there before created this jealous tension, it appears, that they just wanted to get rid of the Jews so they could have those higher positions. Maybe they didn't like being uh, one upped by the Jews. We really don't know all the tension, but they obviously did not like them. Um, so in verse 9, they said to the king, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and the drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Well, there are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now these men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar asked him, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue that I have made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Well, it seems like we have this dilemma where they have to choose what they're going to live for. And as I remember, I was reading about Nebuchadnezzar here. I noticed Nebuchadnezzar has these fits of rage. Um, and a lot of the Bible characters that we have have more than one name. Like all these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been renamed. And Daniel was renamed to Bel Belteshazzar. And I think I want to come up with names for some of the kings in the Old Testament, especially the pagan kings. Like if you've read the book of Esther, you have Artaxerxes. He was kind of like a drunkard. So it was like Artaxerxes the drunk or Artaxerxes the wine bibber. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar would be like Nebuchadnezzar the rageful because in chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 3, verse 13, and chapter 3, verse 19, this is how Nebuchadnezzar is described. It's like full of rage, full of rage. And so the king, full of rage, decides he has to do something about this problem with these Jews. Now, so he calls them in front of him and he uses his names. And he, of course, he uses his names, that they, the names that they were given since being in Babylon. And he challenges them. Now, this challenge is actually, I think, a, a bit of a sign of mercy and compassion from the king. He has accusers that have come to him, but he hasn't proven that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have defied him. He only has the word. And so not wanting to just immediately take the word of these Chaldeans and destroy them, he brings them in. And he says, I've heard this about you. And is it true? And I don't want to believe that it's true, so I'm going to give you a chance. We're going to play all these instruments, which, again, were named. All of them were named again. He says, and when you hear it, I want you to bow down and worship the statue I made. And if you don't, then you know the consequences. And he asks this question. 
And this is the key, really pivotal question of this story. And even though we focus on the fiery furnace, this is the part that's so significant to a people group that are in exile. Who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Now, Nebuchadnezzar has already seen evidence that the God of Israel reveals and interprets dreams in a way nobody else thought was possible. And the disbelief of the Chaldeans at that time was the gods do not live among men. And so they were wrong. They didn't understand Yahweh who dwells among his people. But now the king is in open defiance to Yahweh. He has achieved the original Babylonian goal from Genesis chapter 11 and now stands in arrogance to all gods, especially the God of Yahweh. Um, we call this a God complex. Uh, if you're an, an Avengers fan, this is Loki's role, right? Um, so though few of us as Christians would defy Yahweh with a statement like, what God is going to stop me? Is it possible that we can also have a God complex at times? A God complex is when someone has inflated feelings of personal ability or privilege or infallibility. Uh, in other words, there's nothing that I cannot do. There's nothing I cannot have and I'm never wrong. And most of us don't fall into the, there's nothing I cannot do stage, at least not after we're teenagers. And there's nothing I cannot have stage. We, we kind of understood limits there, but I think probably most of us can trip up on that last one. I'm never wrong. What I say is right and I'm never wrong. But not only does a God complex defy Yahweh, it really degrades the others who are made in the image of Yahweh. The, the two great commandments are to love God with everything and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And a God complex replaces the love of God and the love of others with a love of self. We no longer see others as image bearers and valuable to God. We see them as servants and subjects. And we no longer see God as provider and sustainer but an excuse or an obstacle because I'm now the provider and sustainer. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a serious God complex. And we have to be careful that we don't have those same types of feelings or challenges against God. Uh, so that brings us to the second crisis of faith. Now, most of us will probably not face the fire or a firing squad for believing in God and refusing to serve other gods. Uh, our devotion to Yahweh will be tested, though. And though we may not be forced to bow down to other gods, we will be enticed to worship the things of this world. Um, we read about this in the New Testament, uh, actually the whole Bible a lot. Uh, in chapters 1 and verse 25 of the book of Romans, Paul is talking about people who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. And I think that that would be probably one of the things that our culture can struggle with a lot, to worship and serve that which is created. Um, so our possessions, uh, money, uh, our homes, our jobs, our titles, uh, instead of praising the one who is the creator of all of those things. Um, Deuteronomy 4.15 is another one. Diligently watch yourselves because you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you out of the fire and horror. So don't act corruptly and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of any figure, male or female form, or the form of any animal on the earth, winged creature that flies in the sky, 
any creature that crawls on the ground, any fish in the waters under the sea. When you look to the heavens and see the sun, moon, and stars, and all the stars in the sky, don't be led astray to bow and worship to them and serve them. The Lord your God has provided them for all people everywhere under heaven. And so that verse reminds us that all the things that we could worship, whether it's our possessions or other people, um, our children, all these things that we can put ahead of God were given to us by God, uh, not for us to be objects of our worship, but to remind us of his goodness and his greatness. Um, Matthew 6, 19 is probably one of the more popular passages here. So don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we can see from Nebuchadnezzar that his heart was wrong. But now we have to find out where the heart of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is. This crisis of faith comes when we have to choose what we truly live our lives for, or better yet, better phrase, whom we live our lives for. Are we going to live for our own protection and our own benefit and our own gain? I mean, these Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were uh, higher ups. They were officials that had a lot of power and a lot of privilege as governors of, of regions in Babylon. Do they do what the king wants just so they can hold their positions and so that they can keep above these other people that are below them? Or do they choose to do what they know God would want? And so in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 16, they said to the king, we don't have to give you an answer to that question. And what I mean by that is the question of what God can save you. Like, we don't have to give you an answer to that question. But if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us. And, and he can rescue us not only from the furnace, but he can rescue us from you, the king. But if he does not rescue us, we want you to know, even though as we recognize you as king, we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. And I love this response. Um, this is from a group of guys who are captives and exiles and slaves in Babylon because of God. God put them under the thumb of Nebuchadnezzar, but they also believe, these guys believe, that God could rescue them from Nebuchadnezzar as well. I mean, what, a, what an amazing tension that must have been for them. And I love their response as they answer this. You know what? We don't have to answer you. Uh, ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar, we answer to God, and he's greater than you. Um, and we see this as a very similar response by the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter and the apostles replied to those that arrested them and said, don't speak about Jesus. They said, we must obey God rather than people. Well, they were saying, basically, you know, we don't have to answer to you for this. God is, is capable and we're going to serve God no matter what. Our God is able to save us from you. He's more powerful than you. Uh, Hebrews 13, 6 reminds us, therefore, we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? It's not that um, man can't do stuff to us, but compared to what God uh, does to take care of us and what we have in him, even if they did stuff to us, it will be insignificant compared to what God has done for us. And they said, even if he doesn't save us, our loyalty to him supersedes our loyalty to you. And I think this is the major decision in the crisis of faith. It's one thing to state God can do this or God can do that. But when you take that stand and say, Regardless of what God does, 
I'm going to do the thing that I know God wants me to do. That's when you've made that decision in that crisis of faith. And I think it's an amazing statement for them to make. Um, and I want you to think about, as David brought up to us, um, the goal of the exiles, God gave them a command that they were to seek out the best interests of the, of the country which dominated them, in which they were exiles. And if you are seeking out the best interests of the people who are over you, it truly is in the best interest of the king for these guys to remain faithful to God so that God can continue to bless them and the king. This was not uh, just an act of defiance to the king. This was also recognizing their role as being ambassadors for God to bring God's blessing on this country. Now, the last time Israel was oppressed by a nation, who were they oppressed by? Anybody want to throw that into the chat? Last time they were oppressed, who were they oppressed by? Egypt. That's right, Egypt. And when they were oppressed by Egypt, God rescued them from Pharaoh and took them to the wilderness. And God demonstrated his provision, his protection, and his power over and over again. Uh, this rescuing theme of bondage to freedom is one of those major threads that goes all the way throughout the Bible, uh, Old Testament all the way to the end of the New Testament to Revelation. And, and it points to the work of the Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus. So God took these Jews out of Egypt to the Sinai wilderness, to the base of Mount Sinai, and he gave them some words through Moses. And we call them the Ten Commandments. They were actually called the Ten Words. And these words were meant to guide the people through the challenges they would face in the years and generations to come. They were told to take these commands and to memorize them and to make them a part of their lives and to pass them on to their children because they were going to be needed in, for future generations. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, we get part of that list uh, of these commandments. We get the beginning of the list in Genesis 20, verse 1. It says, then God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or the earth below or the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commands. The first of these 10 words that we have is that Israel was not to have any other gods but Yahweh, not to bow down in idols, not to worship anything else, not to worship anyone else, but Yahweh. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being tested by God for sure. And of course, as we studied last week, beliefs without actions are not really convictions. Um, these three get tested big time about what they believe. And the statements that they make, I think, are a beautiful picture of faith with humility. Um, and this, to me, is something I've wrestled with for years, and it's that, that, I guess, that awkward balance of knowing that God can do things, but God doesn't have to do things. Um, and, and we see that here. For instance, 
God can save them from the fiery furnace, but he doesn't have to. And regardless of what God chooses to do, these three men say, we choose to honor him. It's a firm statement of the power of God as a non-negotiable. The display of God's power or lack of display does not alter the reality of his power. God is able, but he doesn't have to. And I find myself often praying in, in this fashion or after this pattern. Um, God, I, I know that you can do this or that. But even if you don't, I will trust and follow you. And I think that that's uh, just one of those, God, I know you can heal. God, I know you can provide. God, I know you can protect. But even if you choose not to, I know that you are just. And I know that your ways are best. And I know that you can care that that no matter what happens, it's going to work out for your best. And I'm going to follow and I'm going to trust you. I've always struggled, I guess, coming to God and telling him what he needs to do. And I find sometimes in prayers that people get very demanding with God. And I love the humility, the simple humility of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who declare here, listen, let me tell you what God can do. God can do this. He can save us from the fire. He can save us from you, King Nebuchadnezzar. You're the most powerful king, and he can save us from you if he wants to. But even if he doesn't want to, our faith is not going to be shaken. We are not going to be changed. We're not going to be moved. We're going to follow God and to trust him 100%. And I think that that humble faith is something that all of us probably can, can learn from and should be modeling. So, of course, Nebuchadnezzar takes the news well, sends them back to their post and says, yeah, you guys, you know, good job. I appreciate your faith. It's good. You know, go on. You just do what you were doing before. It's all good. That's not Nebuchadnezzar's nature. He's filled with rage again. Remember, he's Nebuchadnezzar the rageful. And he ex the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. Now, just so that you know, that's, that's kind of like a, a, a phrase, like as hot as you can get it. Seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his armies to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. I don't know why you need the best soldiers to tie up people. Um, I, I have a feeling any soldier could do that. So if any of you soldiers want to explain why you would need your best soldiers to tie somebody up, I'm willing to, to take some insight into that. But the best soldiers tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. And then the description goes on. It's great. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. Now, the king just basically gave up some of his best soldiers in his rage. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. So to pause there for a second, uh, how do you fall into a fiery furnace? When we think of a furnace, we're often thinking of something that's uh, you know, like a, you open up a door and that's your furnace. Uh, if you consider this more like a milk bottle shape, uh, it would be uh, a place to be holes on the side where they could use bellows. Uh, this is what a lot of the scholars have said. And then you would have a place where you would be able to put metals in for smelting like the gold and such. Uh, but the top would be like a funnel, like a chimney. And so they would drop them in from the top, which you could see from the bottom and you could add fuel from the bottom. 
And so they drop them in to this fire from the top. So from the chimney area is what it, it appears has taken place here. And the King Nebuchadnezzar jumps up in alarm. And he says to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Well, yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. And he exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire. And he calls out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And when the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected. and There was no smell of fire on them. Now, there, there's so many details here, and there's so much drama going on. I just love this story. This is, this is like the perfect uh, storyteller story, which is why I think it, it ends up being one of those ones that we pass on, especially in Sunday school and, and to the younger kids. But it's such a great lesson for adults as well. Um, you have this rageful king. The furnace is seven times hotter. They keep them clothed, and they list all the clothing. Now, you know, I've, I've singed hair on my hands and on my face with just the campfire or a, uh, the gas grill at times. And, you know, it's, I've, I've melted shoes. They get near the fire and they melt down. And so this idea of having them fully clothed with everything on and tied up and thrown in, you just kind of like, there's no way they're going to survive this. And there's just no way they're going to, their clothes are going to catch on fire and they're just going to incinerate almost immediately. Um, they tie them up so that they can't move and hang on or try to climb out even though the other guys died throwing them in. Um, it's just so cool, all the details that they go through here. Uh, now, the fourth man is really a mystery. Uh, some suppose it to be an angel. Some suppose it to be the pre-incarnate Jesus. Uh, we don't really know. And like with the details of the statue, it really doesn't matter. Uh, though I must admit, I really would love to know what they were talking about as they wandered around in the furnace. I don't think it was a quiet walk. You have four people walking in a furnace. I'm sure that was pretty astounding to the three. And I have a feeling that there were some conversations going on, like, wait till you see Nebuchadnezzar's face after this one. I don't know what it was about, but I really would love to know what they were talking about. And though the cords that bound them are gone, and it's presumed that they were burned up, their hair and their clothes and their skin are unharmed, and they don't even smell like smoke. And I think to me, that's like the most amazing thing of all. Um, if you've ever been around a campfire, you know, you don't have to touch the fire. You just need to be within so many feet and you smell your clothes smell like smoke. And I, I really like that smell, but they had this, they would have the smell of smoke on them. Um, they didn't even have the smell of smoke. So we then get Nebuchadnezzar's response in Daniel chapter three, verse 28. Daniel said, uh, Nebuchadnezzar exclaims, praise to the God Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. 
So Nebuchadnezzar went from saying, and what God can save you? What God is able to deliver you from me? At the end of verse 29, his conclusion is, there is no other God who can deliver like this God. Now, the king, we don't have a record of him rescinding this order to worship the statue. Um, we also know that, uh, you know, they, he still ordered them to throw them in the fire. Uh, but we don't have him taking that away either. There, there's, no, there's no backing away from the initial decrees because the kings could not undo something that they said. But he did make another order, and it's basically mess with Yahweh, even talk bad about him, and I'll rip you apart limb from limb, and I'll make your house into a garbage dump. Um, which I think is just typical Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he's like one of those drama queen kings. Is that is that okay, drama? Anyway, the original intent of Nebuchadnezzar was to draw all the people from all the nations to show respect and honor to him. And in the end, that respect and honor goes to God through him. And to me, this is another one of those themes that echoes throughout uh, this exile period, especially. Um, if you think of, if you've read the book of Esther, this will remind you of Haman and Mordecai, um, where somebody is trying to do something bad and then God uses it to bring about good uh, and to bring glory to his name. So in front of the satraps, prefects, governors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Instead of Nebuchadnezzar being exalted, Yahweh was exalted and Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. And we don't hear about the music or the statue again. And we end with this concept is there is no God who is able to deliver like Yahweh. So why is this story an exile story? Why does God allow these situations to take place when people are doing the right thing to honor him? Why do they have to be placed in a situation where their faith is tested? Why do they have to be put in a spot where they could possibly lose their lives? Why does God allow for these things? Um, this story was obviously a story that was meant to be passed along. Um, and it says at the end that Nebuchadnezzar made this proclamation to all the peoples and all the nations, which means that the Jews would also hear it. And when you have that much repetition, it, you have to remember that we're talking about a, a society that had a lot of oral tradition where they would pass down stories by word of mouth over and over and over again. And so here's this story with many, many things repeated and passed on to all the people. And the final decree is that no one is able to rescue like Yahweh can rescue. And I have to imagine that to a people who were exiled, that to a people who were living in a land that was not theirs, in servitude to a king that did not recognize their God, that wanted to strip them of their God, who were wondering what would happen to us? Will we get through this? I know God promised that after 70 years he would pull us out, but it feels like an eternity being in servitude to these people. I imagine that this story that would be repeated over and over and over again about three men who were faithful to that first commandment of not bowing down to anybody, not, not worshiping any other idols, but they were faithful to Yahweh and God rescued them from the king was a story of tremendous hope for a people that are in exile. God is greater than the nation 
that he has made you captive in. God has placed you where you are, but it is still his goal to use you as his people to point to his glory. God has not forgotten you. And God was using this experience to draw honor to his name among all the nations, as well as to give hope to his people. And I think one of the beauties of this story is it reminds us of what God not only did then, he did it with Egypt, he did it here with Babylon, he still does it today. When you and I choose to live for God by standing strong on his commandments, especially that first commandment, when we put God above everything else, it will impact the people around us. And some may be hostile, especially at first. But in the end, it's not about us. It's not about our life or our comfort or what we deserve. It's about declaring the greatness of God. And God can use you and me to draw nations to him as we see his mighty hand at work in our lives and through us. And when that happens, our hope is strengthened and restored. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to bow to the idols of our culture. We have to be careful not to make the things of this world the things that we live for above and beyond God. We have to make sure that we don't fear men and what they can do to us. And, and let me say men and women. That's, that's kind of the universal mankind. Um, don't fear what people can do to us, but instead have a healthy fear of the Lord, as we learned from Proverbs 1.7. We need to make sure that we don't define God simply by the way he demonstrates his power, but by who he actually is. For instance, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they stood there, said, we know that God can do this, but even if he doesn't, it doesn't change who he is and it doesn't change our response. Don't, don't define God simply by the way that you see him working in your life, because there will be times where he may be silent. And there may be prayers that he chooses not to answer. That does not change the goodness of God. It does not change the justice of God or the love of God. So as we think about living as exiles, which is where we started this Daniel series, we have to realize that you and I will face crises of faith. We're going to face times in our lives where we're going to be challenged by what we believe. And we're going to be challenged to live up to um, our faith. In other words, if, if I truly believe this about God, then how am I going to live it out? And when that happens, it's not going to be easy. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that God was going to save them from the furnace, then there was no faith required. And when you read Hebrews chapter 11, you have reference to those that were saved through fire. Without faith, we don't have to trust. If we just know the outcome, there's no trust. There's no dependence upon God. And God has wanted his people, that's you and me, as well as the Jews. God has wanted his people to trust him and to follow his leading. And just to know that he has everything from everything in control and everything is going to work out for good. Romans 8, 28, not necessarily the, the way we might want, but the good that has to happen for his kingdom, for his glory, for his power. Um, so as we think about uh, these thoughts, as we wrap up here, I want to challenge you in a couple ways. One is, how are you um, approaching God 
in your faith? Uh, do you have a humble faith, but also uh, a healthy faith? For instance, I know God can. Uh, we just went through this in praying for uh, my brother-in-law who went home to be with Jesus not too long ago. And as we were praying, I know that God could have healed him from the cancer that he had. But whether or not God chose to heal him would not change the way that his family and even the way that he would serve and honor God. We have to have that perspective in all of life, knowing what God can do, but not demanding that God do things our way, acknowledging that he is God and he deserves our respect and he deserves our trust and he deserves our love, regardless of our circumstances or the things that we want him to accomplish on our behalf. And we have to make sure that we are not living for the things of this world, that we're not using our circumstances, um, being exiles, living in this world, that we're not using those things as an excuse to live in a way that puts God to the side. That we're not rationalizing uh, unhealthy lifestyles because our society says it's okay, uh, but that we're living to honor God no matter what no matter what the consequences are. And for us, probably the greatest consequence we would have is being shunned or mocked or ridiculed by somebody else, maybe losing a job. Um, but all those things are inconsequential when you realize that God is the one who gives us everything that we have. So our message for today from these, this time of exile comes down to God is the God who is able to save. There is no one like our God who is able to save us from every circumstance. But even if he chooses not to, will it change the way that you live for him? And it's my prayer that it will not, that you will be faithful to live for God regardless of your circumstances and not allow your circumstances, not allow your, your culture, your, your situation, your crisis of the time to change the way that you view God or the way that you trust him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a good God, that you are in control, that you are faithful. We thank you for reminder from your word that you are the God who can save and no one can save the way you do. That you are above all rulers, that you are above all circumstances, that you are greater than any physical constraint we have on this earth. That nothing surprises you and that nothing happens by chance. And so we acknowledge today your lordship, your kingship. We acknowledge that you alone are worthy of being praised, that you are the one that we were created to live for. Father, forgive us for the times that we haven't. Thank you for being a merciful God who chooses, you say from your word, to forgive us. That when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive. We thank you that we can claim that promise and pray that you would strengthen us in our faith to trust you when we face those situations of crisis in our lives so that in the end other people around us even those that are living contrary to you would choose to praise your name and to acknowledge your goodness in the midst of the situations we pray in jesus name for your sake for your kingdom for your glory amen